The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 52 of The Things We All Carry. This week, I sit down with Brad from the Eastern Shore of Maryland. Brad is a third-generation firefighter with 22 years of service. He started as a volunteer and is now approaching 18 years with his career department. In this episode, Brad details his story of post-traumatic growth by shedding light on the topic of mental health. Today, Brad uses his experience of growth and personal development to help others in their efforts with their own journey with mental health. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy this show. All right, joining us today is Brad's out of the Eastern Shore of Maryland, a couple hours away from where I am. Unfortunately, we were unable to hook up in person, so we're going to do this on the phone. And it's a gorgeous day out here, so he is sitting outside. So if you pick up some wind or some noise, just bear with us. He's enjoying the day, and I can't blame him for doing that. Brad, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, man. Appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, man, I appreciate you, first of all, reaching out, and second of all, coming on and telling your story a little bit. Like I've said before, I'm always amazed when people reach out to me, so it's awesome. You want to tell people where you found me? I guess in my journey of the fire service and my my PTS and everything else, I got into reading and podcasts and things like that. And one door opens another and another. And through one podcast, I found you and really like what you're doing. So I reached out and hoping that I can help you spread your good word and what we're all trying to do with mental health in the fire service. I'm going to give a shout out to that podcast because he means a lot to me because he, he was the first guy I spoke to about this show and he gave me such encouragement and he gave up a couple hours of a Saturday one day before I even started the show just to talk to me about the steps and the pitfalls and he's just a genuine human being and that's James Gearing from Behind the Shield. So if you guys haven't picked up James' show, go to Behind the Shield and take a listen. It's a fantastic show. Yeah, definitely a great resource. Let's talk about family. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? What was your family uh, like? And get into all that. Sure. So I grew up just over the Bay Bridge, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, probably 10 minutes east of Annapolis. Lived there with my mom and dad and my younger brother. We just grew up cliche 80s and 90s latchkey kids. It, it was a pretty rural setting. So we had we had run the neighborhood, the woods, everywhere. We could ride our bikes for an entire day and play with all the neighborhood kids. The parents somehow kept track of us and kept us alive. Could win. We're just out running around. Playing sports and all that good stuff. And slowly got into the fire department life. Both of my grandfathers were volunteers. My mom's dad was actually a chief for the, at the Naval Academy or retired as a chief at the Naval Academy Fire Department. I mean, uh, so my dad was a volunteer. And I just remember being as a little kid going to the firehouse and seeing all the guns and wolves and all that stuff. And I was just one of the little kids running around. I just knew that as a way of life. And I guess as we got a little bit older, dad took time off from being a volunteer to really focus on us as kids and all the sports. And my brother was in Boy Scouts. So we were active all the way up to high school. And that's where I really started to, he got back into it right about 12, 13 years old. 
And something about it, like just hanging out at the firehouse and seeing the camaraderie and the joking and everything else. I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Maybe I grew up a little bit faster just hanging out with people well above my head. You just see the excitement. You see the adrenaline. You see the hyping on their faces when they're going out on fire. And coming back and telling the stories. That just grabbed me. Yeah, in high school, I was pretty dedicated to the volunteer service. And at 15, I joined. I was actually officially a member. And I actually got to go into a VOTAC program in my junior year of high school. So where we were the first class to start it back in 2000. So we got out of school to go do firefighting stuff. EMT, fire, fire one, fire two, rescue tech. It was two whole semesters. And it really set us up for fire department careers. It set us up for being volunteers. So it was just, it was really cool week. <laughs> In the first class, we got away with a lot of stuff. Of course, there's a lot of classes, but the teachers didn't know about our program. So they just moved the local fire siren blow and we would get out of class because they just thought we had to go. So yeah, we had some, uh, some pretty cool experiences with that. But yeah, 16 years old, started riding and that was like my new passion. So I went from wanting to be a major league baseball player to wanting to be a professional firefighter, which is probably better because I wasn't six foot tall. I couldn't throw a hundred miles an hour. I wasn't hitting one months. I think I'm doing better off in the fire service. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. You need a, you need some certain tools in the, to be a major league baseball player. Yeah. Like I said, uh, it being six foot tall and things like that. It just, it wasn't in my cards. So I changed my focus and this was something that, that I could see, you know, yeah, I watch major league baseball players. I can see the firehouse. I can, we'd go across the bridge into Annapolis and stuff like that. Oh, my dad said, oh yeah, all these fire trucks, most of these guys are paid. Guys and girls are paid. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. So you're volunteering and I could go make this a job. And once I figured that out, I was like, nope, that's what I'm doing. I knew in high school, my mom really wanted me to go to college. She wanted me to go so bad, but I knew then I didn't know what I wanted to be and how going to college was going to make me better in the fire department. She couldn't convince me. And dad was working at a local community college. So we got free tuition. All we had to pay for was like books and registration. So I did, I had my senioritis. I went to a couple semesters and just, it was not for me. I was done with school. I didn't want to be there. And I was like skipping class to go be at the firehouse or work part time. And this is 2003, 2004. So it's post 9-11. And I was looking at it like, oh, I'm just going to the military. That's where I'll get my free college. I'll learn a job. I'll do all this. But uh, I had about as much convincing my mom and going into the military and she had me going to college. I just kept working and grinding with applying to fire departments. I applied all the way in the D.C. area, Baltimore City, all the way down into like Williamsburg, Virginia. I had delusions of grandeur to go down and apply with Myrtle Beach. Just I wanted to be a professional firefighter somewhere. A friend of mine that I volunteered with, he up saying, we should go to paramedic school. Let's go to paramedic school. I'm like, man, I am not going. That's the last thing on my radar. So he's, we're, we need to get hired. If we want to get hired, we need to be paramedics. That's what they're, that's what they're looking for. So on and so forth. I mean, he just, he couldn't talk me into it. So I remember one day we went for a ride and he said he was going to apply to the paramedic program. And just ride with me. We got nothing else to do. We show up to the community college and we sit down with a counselor. And she brings out two packets of paper and one of them's for me. And I'm like, what's this? He's you're signing up for paramedic school. I'm not doing it. He's like, man, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have this. He's like, well, once you get hired, you'll have all of those. So reluctantly, I signed up for paramedic school. Luckily, my volunteer department at the time 
they, they paid for it. They paid for everything. So I was working full-time, going to school at nights, doing all my ride-alongs and everything else. With that, we kept applying to different departments and I got picked up with the department I'm with now. So it was the summer that I finished all my paramedic stuff was the summer that, uh, the end of that summer, I got picked up and got home. Of course, volunteering, you run all the calls, but you say it doesn't bother you. You think it does, but you're not sure. But growing up with it, I just realized, I just saw that everybody was, they were talking about a crash and a fatal. Man, that guy was so messed up and I was right there. And, oh, and then everybody's one up at each other and telling a more gory story. Oh, you had one fatality and I had two. And so for me, it was just, oh, that's how you, that's how you process that. You just, yep, I saw it. That's what I'm supposed to see. And it is what it is. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to ask you about that because that's a theme for the guys and gals I've talked to who joined at 15 or 16 years old and came in as a junior member and, and they were seeing these things at such a young age. And I'm sure you saw quite a bit at such a young age. It, was there anything at that in your department to deal with that? And it doesn't sound like there was. It sounds like it was just, uh, let's use some dark humor and shake it off. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. That uh, Like, no, there wasn't a process. There wasn't schism. There wasn't that kind of stuff. I think that they talked about it, but it was like that taboo. Then it was like, you can do that. Like, nobody really addressed it. And I vividly remember the very first nasty fatal crash that I saw. And it was a, it happened to be an out of town. It was on the one curve that everybody crashes and we get there and the guys, he's died in the car and yeah, he was, he was pretty mangled up, but I had to wait for the ME's office and we just waited on scene until they got there and they took their pictures, did what they had to. And one of the guys was like, all right, kid, let's go. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, we got to get them out of the car. I was like, why do we have to do it? He's like, well, we don't, but you're going to. Looking back, I use that now as a company officer and mentoring young people. That you can't force them into it. But then it was like, oh, here, I'm getting my rite of passage. I'm getting my, my first lump or my first experience. And now I can start telling those stories. So it was like my 16, 17-year-old mind. I'm like, this isn't normal. But then that 16, 17-year-old young mind is like, oh, I get a badge of courage. I get a badge or check mark or whatever you want to call it. It's, but, a, it's ironic that you talk about that because... I was just, just yesterday, I was talking to somebody about the fact that in a lot of the parts in my department, when there's a, say there's a suicide or there's a, a even a death by natural cause, and you got to go in our department, fire rescue goes in and pronounces, pronounces someone dead. We had the parameters we have to follow to pronounce them dead, but the cops call us in and we pronounce the body. Very often it's, you see someone go, okay, you send a rookie in, unless there's a medic there to do it, but you send a rookie in because it's tedious. It's the boring work, but really nobody really wants to interact with dead bodies. Sure. So it's funny. So I've taken it, like you said, and kind of taken it to my position in, when I get to ride the seat, if you get something like that, then I'm going in, I'm not sending the young guy in to do it. Sure. So I just, yeah, think, it, I think there's a matter of, it, with leadership, there's a matter of protection at times as well. Absolutely. And so, yes, there's a level of protection. But also you feel like you need to set those people up, the newer people or less experienced, younger, whatever that, that, that person is. And you need to set them up with success. Hey, we're going in to do this. This is something you don't want to see. You don't need to see it. Unfortunately, there's going to be a time in their career where they may have to see it. And there's that added shock factor. So you going with what you know and preparing them for it. And then the follow-up after, I think is the best of both worlds. We still get the job done. We don't tiptoe around the ugly part of it, 
but we also build these people's resilience and their confidence in it later so that they're not so blindsided. Yeah. And that's a good way of putting it. And there is that, there's that conversation around the whole situation. And, and that is a huge piece of it. I know sure. the other day we had a shooting and it was a suicide and, and I know some guys are going, I want to go in there and see it. And I was like, I don't, I just don't need to add more dead bodies to my brain. Exactly. I, I was like, we weren't the first unit on scene and there was no reason for me to go in. There's no reason for any of my guys to go in there. It just, just, it's just, it's extra that you don't need up there. You're going to see your own shit. I'm not going to bother with the extra. Sure. Yeah. Volunteering. We, we saw that stuff. We saw, I saw some stuff. There was a, I did CPR on a guy that I, for a longer, a long time, he was friends with my dad and neighborhood cookouts and stuff like that. You see him at the grocery store. And I remember doing CPR on, that was the first time I did a CPR on somebody that I knew. It was sad. It was, but I, I guess I was taught at an earlier age, like you didn't put them in the emergency. So you can't really tie yourself to the emergency in the situation. Now you see the man's wife in the grocery store and you're like, man, the last time I saw your husband was not a real pretty scene. But again, that just goes back into that older mindset of it's part of the job. It's the cost of doing business. So yeah, I guess through my teens, that's where I started to notice that there was less of a shame factor to that, to dead people, to things like that. You're just, yep, it's just another day on the job. When I get, once I get hired with the fire academy, with my fire department, I'm going through the academy. I'm 20 years old, in the best shape of my life. And now I'm going to an academy where we're running, we're doing everything like PT and the classroom stuff. And I couldn't be happier. I was, most of the older people that had real lives and spouses and kids and real bills and all that stuff. They're like, man, this is tough. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. This is the best thing that's ever happened. And I was just, I couldn't be more proud just doing the job. No matter where it was, I was just happy to be doing it. And to finish, finish fire school. And because I had my medic, I came like right out of school, right out of, right out of the academy. Graduation was on a Friday and I was working a little on shift work. Well, we were on 2448. We were going for 2472. But so we started on 2448. And once I got cut loose to work overtime, I was like, wait a minute. Like I, I remember talking to a guidance counselor in high school. When I jokingly said that I wanted to find a job where I could make $25 an hour watching TV. And she, she laughed at me. And look, I remember the first day that I worked overtime and I was like, I wish I could go tell her what I'm doing right now. And of course, that's not everything it is. Just to sit there and eat dinner, watch TV, and get paid overtime, I was tickled. So yeah, I was a, I guess you could say like a naive country kid. And now I'm working in Brooklyn Park, which is like just south of Baltimore City. So for me, it was a complete culture shock. Just the things that I saw was like, oh my God, it's a whole new world. Riding down the street, going to a call at two o'clock in the morning on a school night. And there's kids just riding bikes up and down the street, like little kids, 10 years old. So things like that just completely threw me for a loop. But my preceptor was a paramedic for 30 years. He's been in the department for 20 years at this point, if not more. He also was a, an EMS chief for a neighboring jurisdiction. Well, to say he was like gruff and rough and everything was an understatement, but uh, he was actually the best thing that I could ask for in a precept. Now, like, it's just, you hit the goal, I'm running and running all night and working overtime, working busy. I feel like I didn't have time to stop and think about it. And I was just having fun doing my job. You just go on and you, you run in the calls and I'm just real work. I had a couple different assignments. I got moved into a driving position. So a station I was in, we actually, I was a paramedic driver. And this spot, it was only four of us. It was two of us on the engine and two on the medic unit. We had an awesome group. We had 
it was a, it was tight knit. So those of you that are listening, like the bigger houses, the double houses, then two and three staffed units and it's 10, 15 people running around. There's never a dull mood. Imagine the same atmosphere with just four people. They really knew each other. So we, you're running bad calls and stuff like that. But we had, I think at the time, like I had the coping mechanisms that was like, oh, it's a bad call. You just, you brush it off and you run run the next call. So you say, you said you thought you had the coping mechanism. Yeah. If you would ask me then. If I was coping well, of course I was. I thought I was. But as I learned, used on the road, not so much. It wasn't that great of a coping mechanism. And thankfully, my coping mechanisms didn't lead me to like alcohol or drugs or anything like that. Just I knew that was bad coping mechanisms, but everything that I was doing in the meantime was not. What would you say were your coping mechanisms at that time? So really it was more of isolating myself. I, I would hang out in my garage and in the wintertime, I had a little wood stove, I had cable TV. I could go out, putz around in the garage or fix something, take something apart just to fix it. I could go out really whatever. I found things to do to keep my mind busy so that I wouldn't think about it. But at this point in my life, I was like two kids, two younger kids. And that like just compounded stress of work and home been really a turbulent marriage at this point. It was just, I found things to do to keep myself busy and hindsight. I was just covering up what I had dealt with or what I had seen or what I was feeling. I was covering it up with something else. And for lack of better terms, just piling shit up on a desk and not having any room to work. If that makes sense. No, it it definitely makes sense. And because I was in a turbulent marriage, I was in a turbulent marriage. My coping mechanism was pinning everything with my wife at the time and everything that went wrong. I was starting to feel like like I was completely alone. Like I'm trying to discuss stuff and it's just not getting across. Then I would get angry or I would just start working a shitload of overtime because people at work understood what I was thinking and feeling, even if I wasn't talking about it. I felt safer at work. I felt more comfortable at work. If you're, if you're at work, you know how jokingly and smoothness can be probably a little bit more like abrasive or more like dark humor and funny like that, but I'm not going to go home and joke like that with my four-year-old. I'm not going to go joke like that with my wife because we're not talking because whatever the disagreement was. So now I'm like coming home angry. I'm coming home irritable and not sleeping and things like that. Oh, my coping mechanism was I'll just stay up all night and work on this project. I'll go out in the garage and fix this or just whatever it was. It was just to keep my mind off of things. And then in December, December 18th of 2014, I'm at work and I really couldn't tell more about the day other than it was cold, but a normal firehouse operations and we'd had dispatched for a call for a long fall. And on the way to the call, our dispatchers are telling us that they're starting the early activation, which is from Maryland State Police. They do our aviation reports for like trauma calls and specialty calls. So as we're going, I'm on the medicated this day. Well, here we go. We got a trauma. It sounds legit. They're, they're upgrading things. They're putting more units on you. And uh, so we get there and to describe the building, it was, it used to be an old like outdoor lumber yard. So it was just a, like a metal corrugated roof with a metal frame kind of building. And then it was later closed in and they made a hardware store on it. Or at least the hardware store took over the outdoor lumber yard and now it's all indoor. 
So with the corrugated metal roof, they had sections of the clear plastic corrugation that they used as skylights. When they redid the roof, they painted everything the same color. As we come into the call, we go in and we're taking all of our bags and we're met with one of our retirees. And guy retired with 30 some years on the job. He, everybody knows him really good dude. His brother works for the department. So I walk up and I see his face and it was just pure panic and terror. And this is the man that's seen everything and then some. And he's just pure, like, panic. So I'm like, going on? And he, all he can say is, it's Kenny, it's Kenny. And we're like, Kenny? Okay, not thinking anything of it. And we walk into the seat, and there's middle-aged being, laying on the ground, big puddle of blood. We roll him over. We're taking C-spine. We're doing the whole thing. And sure enough, we notice that. He's actually an off-duty lieutenant, but he works station over from us the next well, the shift after us. Now, immediately, I, like, I've driven a fire engine for this guy. I've worked in his station before. I've worked with him. He works close enough. He's such a good dude. Nobody has a bad word to say about him. But here we are. We're seeing him in a bad way. So for all the medical people out there, you know, go to the chapter on head injuries and just read down all the signs and symptoms. It was there. Everything. I couldn't tell you what we did on the call. I couldn't tell you who talked, who spoke, who directed, who did anything. But I can tell you that everything happened like poetry emotion. It was just like we had scripted it so we didn't have to talk. One person's on C-spine, two people are doing the boarding kind of like this. And it was just happening so fast. So we, I remember I ran out to the medic unit and started consulting with shock trauma. I couldn't tell you what I said. I probably cussed on the radio. Uh, but at this point, it was just like autopilot. We were just working and doing. So we get him loaded up. We get him to the LZ. State police come in, do all the transfer care. My partner loads up flying with MSP as a second provider. And we load him up and everybody's gone. And they're like, hey, we're done. So I drove the medicator back to the station and back into the bay. And I get out. And I, at the time, we, we had to roll our button-up shirts all the time. So we get back from this call. I got blood on me. And I'm just like mentally drained. Like, I felt like I ran a marathon. I felt like I just sat for some big taste, uh, just physically and emotionally drained. So I kick off my boots. So I'm buttoning my shirt. As I walk into the kitchen, one of our division chiefs is standing there. And he's a, a former semi pro football player. So he's a big dude. So I'm like, hey, boss, what's up? And he's like, Brad, what can I do for it? And I was like, I have no idea. Like, what do you need? And I was like, I have no idea. He's like, you guys need lunch? Did you go to the store? And I was like, no. What do you want for lunch? Whatever you want, boss. How about pizza? Fine. And I can feel myself starting to get angry at him just by asking questions. And in, in retrospect, I wasn't mad at him. He was doing other things he thought was wrong. Well, I think still on the tail end of the old SISM model. Or as I like to say, he didn't know what he did. He didn't know what the right thing was. So he was just trying to do something. But nonetheless, I'm getting more and more aggravated. And finally look at him like, chief, make a call, make a decision, order pizza. I don't care. What do you want on it? I don't care. And I was like, you know what? I need to get a shower. So I go back, I get a shower, come back in a clean uniform. I'm like, boss, I'll pull my He's like, no, don't worry about it. So now more and more people are starting to show up. Everybody knows it's an all-studio guys. People are showing There's chiefs everywhere. And it was just, the more everybody keeps asking if we're okay, the more I'm realizing I'm not okay. Living that old stigma of, yeah, I'm fine. Just leave me alone. Let the dust settle so I can figure it out myself. And again, I don't think any of the chiefs there were doing it as to 
be rude or patronizing or anything like that. They just didn't know what they didn't know. And uh, so we were given the option, like, hey, if you guys want to go home, you can go home. If you want to stay, you can stay. If you want to stay for a little bit and then go home, the choice is yours. And I think if one of us would have left, we all would have left. But nobody wanted to. So we all stayed. And from there, I couldn't tell you the rest of the shift. Except for the phone ringing off the hook. Whether my cell phone, the station phone, everybody's phones were just going off. And it was just getting exhausting. Again, I don't remember if we ran any more calls. I don't remember what else happened. But I do remember the next morning when I was leaving for work. I was leaving work for home. I called my wife at the time and I said, hey, I'm turning my phone off. My phone's going crazy. It's just so overwhelming. I'm going dark for a little while. But when I get home, I'll call you from the house phone. Um... And I'll let you know I'm safe. Yep, no problem. And I remember driving home for that hour of change and just crying the whole time. Like, it was just so overwhelming. It's two weeks before Christmas. Let me back up. The, the morning that we were waking up on our shift, so we're still at work, we wake up. There's a deputy chief of the department making coffee for us at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And I remember coming out of the bunk room and I said, well, this isn't fucking good. And he says, hey, guys. Yeah, you're right. He's like, have some coffee and hang tight. So once the whole shift woke up and we're, everybody was there, he gave us the news that, uh, that Kenny had passed away. But they had kept him alive long enough. The chief was reassuring us that we did so much that we were able to keep him alive long enough that they harvested seven organs from him that uh, were able to help other people. As tragic as it was, it's still a silver lining that he was able to help people. But we wanted our guy. We wanted our guy to pull through, like the guy that we knew. Once we got that news... That's when I was on my way home, and I just remember crying, like crying about everything. It was just like, it was like the like somebody had been blowing a balloon up all day, full of emotion and everything else, and it just popped, and it was just there. I got home, I took a shower when I got home, and I didn't do anything. I laid on the couch, I cried all day. It was just like that was my only way of like really digesting all of it at the time i was still volunteering not where i grew up but where i where i live now and a guy that i was friends with he was a, a career firefighter for another jurisdiction he knew about it and our plan for that evening was hey we're gonna go sit in the garage we'll drink beers if you want to drink beers if you don't we don't have to if you want to go for a ride we can just ride around we'll go for a boat ride we'll do whatever you need to do this guy at the time actually he knew what was up as a firefighter, he, he knew what was up and knew that something had to be done, but wasn't pressuring or anything like that. That night we had a meeting at the family house. It was the elections. Those of you that are volunteers, you know how this goes. It's the time of year. This place actually does a dinner to get people to come out for the election night. So you see people that you don't see all year round just to come out for the volunteer elections. And everything's over. We're eating dinner and I'm getting ready to go have a beer with my buddy. And my daughter was running around the firehouse. She slips and busts her chin. So my wife at the time, she's like, you have to take her. I have to work in the morning and you don't. So you're taking her to the hospital. I'm not sitting there all night. And I looked right at her and I was like, I am not going to the hospital. Like not doing it. I've had a terrible day and I'm going to go sit in the garage and take care of this. And she's, you ran one bad call in your career. You want a fucking pity party. <clears throat> and that probably was more of a dagger into the center of my chest than running the bad call itself. And I remember standing behind myself like an out-of-body experience. And I leaned in and whispered in my ear. I said, if that was my wife, I'd kill her right now. 
And then I remember, oh, that is my wife. And I don't, I didn't know what to do. I was like frozen in fear, in, in hatred, in I don't know how many more emotions there were, but they hit me so fast that I was like paralyzed. So to avoid the whole conflict, I grabbed my daughter, put her in the truck, driving up to the hospital. And, and I remember calling on the way there where I was more private, but giving a tongue lashing that I've never heard before. Like saying such hateful things and probably like screaming to the point of my voice, like almost bleeding, having a sore throat the next day. And I could have put my finger on it. That was probably the day that I knew my marriage wasn't going to last. But nonetheless, get my daughter stitches and things just went by the wayside. At this this point, I'm more like I know nothing at home is going to fix anything at work. And if I come home from work in a bad attitude or a bad mood or just a bad day, bad sleep, whatever, that's not going to have any swing at home. I can't come home and say, Hey, I just I ran all night. I'm going to need a nap or I'm busy at work. I just need to chill and relax. I knew that wasn't going to be any sort of outlet, but work is just going, it's going as it is. And we do the funeral, the, the whole funeral detail. And, you know, I, my wife at the time was telling, I need you to hurry up. You don't have to be there. All day. I don't know why this is so important. And I guess part of me was just thinking, like, how heartless could a person be that one, you weren't there and you're going to tell me how I have to feel or two, like you, you just have no concept of what this is and you're going to tell me I'm wrong. So a lot of stuff just, I just started feeling like that about everything. I would make a suggestion. No, we're not doing that. Okay. I must be the problem. I must be wrong. I'm the common denominator. I'm too angry. I'm too this. And I, because I was so angry, I went and saw a counselor and you used our work EAP and there, I feel like the EAP is a 50, 50, that it's either the best thing in the world or it's the worst. And all of our stories that I've heard at work up to this point were negative, but it's, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know how this works. So I make some appointments. I go talk to a counselor about some anger management and, um, the guy was, he was good, but he was like, oh, yeah, you're very angry. So take a couple deep breaths and count backwards from 10 and try not to be angry. I just felt like it was very off the cuff as if like you bumped into somebody at a bar and they were just giving you a piece of advice. Like it didn't seem like there was any. Um, I went back maybe a week later and he's like, oh, how have you been? I'm like, oh, today's fine. I'm not angry about anything. He's like, oh, cool. That works. I was good talking to you out of an hour and 10 minutes in two different sessions. I felt like it was just a waste of my time. Nonetheless, now um, work's going. It's going fine. I get an opportunity to work at our training academy. Hey, guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount, and I appreciate all of you. I have one request, though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as you can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. I'm going to break in one, one second. I'm going to interrupt, but, and I know I'm not supposed to. I should just let you go, but I, I want to ask you about something that, that you hit on that I think is important. 
So sure, we're sure. going to get back to the training. When the accident happened, when Kenny fell and you guys came back to the station, uh-huh. I remember you telling me when we talked last that you felt like it wasn't your firehouse anymore. And you and I talked about that's very similar sentiment to what TJ back in episode four spoke about when they right. lost a firefighter to a to LOD in a fire, that it wasn't their firehouse anymore. And I don't think anybody was, I don't know, you can tell me from your perspective in your situation, I just think it was they just didn't know what to do, Craig. It wasn't it wasn't anything Absolutely. nefarious. It wasn't anything hurtful. Or, it, they just were trying to do, almost trying to do too much. No, totally. I don't think there was any malicious intent whatsoever. I'll explain it later when I get into like my recovery and everything else. But I think they were like, we need to do something sooner rather than later. And almost at the fear of if we don't show up, they're going to think we, we don't. And that's why I'll never hold any ill feelings to them on that because I think that's exactly what it is. Like we just need to be present and we need to be here and let them know that we're here. And if we see something, we'll do something. If they ask for something, we'll do it. I think if we told them we need two days off, they would have been like, cool, done. See you. Bye. We'll drive you home. Don't think that they were ingenuine with anything that they were doing, but I think it was just a matter of, and I don't want to say showing face because they were just doing it. Like, Oh, we just got to show up and leave. I think it's just a matter of being there. And if we wanted to come back and just have a big hug and cry fest in the engine bay while we're dealing with it, we almost felt like there was too many eyes on us. If we were to do that, what are they going to say? Oh, wow, they're having an emotional breakdown. We should probably send them home. We might have to put them off for a while. They might have to be on late duty. What if they're not fit for duty? I'm only speculating on what their thought process was. But again, I think it's that they didn't know what they didn't know, or they didn't know what the right thing to do was, so they just did something. I couldn't tell you how long they were there. It might have been an hour. It could have been two or three. But yeah, we like now we have to be on our P's and Q's because we've got multiple big chiefs walking through the building. So we can't cut up with our dark humor because we don't want the chiefs seeing us maybe acting out or lashing out or anything. So yeah. Again, I think you're right that it didn't feel like our firehouse. It, it wasn't with like poor intent. I just think it's interesting because I think one of the points TJ makes, and I don't know if you mentioned you're going to talk about it in a little bit, but one of the points that TJ makes is it's time for these departments to plan for it, not to be reactive when something happens, but be proactive and be prepared for something, prepare for the worst. Obviously we're not, we're hoping for the best, but sure, it's inherently dangerous. We know that when we go into the fire department with fire service is inherently dangerous. Right. So you, you should have that response planned ahead of time. So it's not overwhelming for the crew it's not i don't know it doesn't wear them down it doesn't make them alienated in their own firehouse where that that's the one spot they should feel the safest at after an incident like that we pre-plan everything we from a big mall fire to a school shooting to mess calls mass casualties multiple alarm incidents like we we pre-plan all of those things and it's time to pre-plan the stuff that we don't do all the time and that's where i've used my experience as we'll get into later I've used my experience to make those things better. So yeah, now I'm, I'm teaching at the training academy. I'm working Monday through Friday. And then at this point, you know, my, my marriage is on, really on the fritz. We're, we're separated. The divorce proceedings are happening. And for me at that point, I, that's where I started to really struggle with just me. And what I mean by that is my parents, they're married now for 45 years. Both sets of my grandparents were married for 65 years. And now I'm going through a divorce and all I can think of is 
this career that I've worked my ass off for, that I've given my my teens, I gave up going to parties and gave up all this stuff to be a career firefighter. Now it's having this huge impact on my career or my career is having an impact on my life. Like now I only live and breathe the fire department and I'm not happy unless I'm at work. And now all that being said, I'm really glad I went through my divorce. It needed to happen. It would have been a very turbulent lifestyle for me for a long time. And so it was a very double-edged sword that I was pissed off and upset and scared because I'm going through a divorce. But I also knew I didn't want to be married to her. It was just, it was making me a bad person. And being at the training academy was actually really good for me. It kept me busy Monday through Friday and it was doing what I really loved. By this time, I've already been certified as a state instructor. So I'm teaching with the VOTEC program that, that I was the first class through. So that's a pretty rewarding aspect of it. Now I'm teaching at the training academy and really just loving it, having a blast. So I was good at work again. I was back on top. And as life goes on, getting back into the dating pool after divorce, it was like, it was that fresh stuff. I thought, hey, things would get better, but then it's like the same things are popping up. I'm irritable. I'm like hypervigilant. I'm like, I just feel like everything, if things don't go right, it's all my fault. I did something wrong, even if I had zero control over it. And so a couple failed relationships just from my emotional instability, I started looking at counseling again. And I'm like, okay, my first marriage didn't work. Now these relationships aren't working. And I'm still like coming home and yelling at the dog for silly shit. I'm yelling at the kids for being kids. I'm just pissed off about everything all the time. And, you know, what's Einstein's rule on insanity? If you're doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different outcome, that's insanity. So I start looking into stuff again, like, all right, maybe there's something else. So I try the EAP again. And this time it was just for just general counseling. And I meet up with a new counselor. And when I walked into her office, actually, it's like an office in the back of her house. I judged that book by the cover. And I'm, I'm wrong for doing that because I walked up and I was like, this is some hippie crap. This is earthy, crunchy. This is just, let's light some incense and talk about our feelings. And I was like, this is not going to work for me. She is not going to get this. And I was so wrong. I was terribly wrong. She was phenomenal. She didn't have a whole lot of experience with the fire, police, and military lifestyles. But she was phenomenal. I walked in and had a chip on my shoulder. And as soon as we started talking, I broke down and let it out. Like, I couldn't talk to her enough. And uh, so, yeah, she, she pulls things all the way back from the past. She brings the stuff from the current. It was just ways of talking about things that really changed my paradigm on everything. And I had four sessions with her and could not wait to go back and talk to her. And unfortunately, with our EAP... You only get four sessions and then you have to either play the system and say that we're going to go and talk to the same person about a completely different thing and continue the old conversations, or you have to go completely out of the network. So unfortunately, she didn't take my insurance, but she said, listen, you're in the right direction, but you need to keep going. Like you're open and you're raw and you're vulnerable right now. So you need to keep going with this stuff. And I was like, yep, okay, let me see how I can get this to work. And then the EAP system failed me and that that I was trying to get back with the same counselor, but it was too many 
hoops and red tape and all that crap. So I'm like, you know what? I'll, I'll build this book on complex PTLs. Let me, let me just read that. I just started looking at whatever self-help resources there were. So I'm reading this complex PTSD book and it's a little workbook and it's helping reframe some mindsets and things are looking good. Um, now I'm starting to read really whatever I can get my hands on in that mental wellness, mental health, like genre, just anything like that. Things are good, but now like I, I just, I couldn't get a grasp on it. Like I, I knew I didn't know what to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And but now it, I never had suicidal thoughts, but like the ideations almost if I was more reckless and something else happened to me and I didn't do it, then I can release myself from all this stuff. But I wasn't the coward. I didn't do anything. And, but it was there. So I, I remember being like at the training academy and we're doing burn days and I would be the admission officer and go in and light the fire. And I just sit there and keep stoking fires, stoking the fire while I was still in the room. And one of my fellow instructors came in and she grabs me and she's smacking sense into me. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're burning yourself. Like, your shoulders are red. Like, you got blisters now. And all I can remember telling her is, at least I knew where this pain's coming from. I can pinpoint this pain and I know how to stop it. Like, I'm in control of it. And for me, that was like the, at that point, I just felt like, like, uh, I'm tarnished. I'm done. Like, like I'm the black cloud. Like now it's just, Hey, let me wear all of this. Everybody else move forward. Leave me in the corner. I'll be here when you need that gruff voice or that like almost like insensitive person. Like when you need that, call me, I'll be back here. But if you're having like those friendly conversations, I'm just going to isolate myself. And, and that actually lasted for a few years, just almost like a loner. Nope. I can't hold a stable relationship. I'm just always angry. I'm always at work. I'm working too much. But this is what I signed up for. So it was such a distorted reality that it's like you've been through all this stuff. This is how you're going to be the rest of your career. As a 16-year-old kid, that's what I remember seeing some of the older guys. They were just – you didn't talk like the touchy-feely stuff with them. They, they wouldn't have it. They just – they talked in cuss words and yelling at people. And I was like, oh, that's just going to be me the rest of my life. At this point, I've been promoted to work. I'm a lieutenant. And uh, it just kept eating and eating and eating and – I finally got to a point that I had a conversation with my kids one night and I may have had a beer or two just for some liquid courage to talk to, I guess at this time they were what, eight and four, seven and three. And I remember putting them on the couch and I knelt down in front of them and I said, I'm going to ask you a serious question and there's no wrong answer. And I promise I won't be mad at whatever you say. I said, but are you ever afraid of daddy and to watch them go from like curious to what I'm asking to like panic in their eyes because they knew they knew I was, they were afraid of me. I knew they were afraid of me, but I needed to hear it from them. And I remember asking them and I watched them go into panic mode and their eyes welled up with tears and I lost it. And I just had to hug them. I had to, I was like, Nope, I'm done. I can't live this way. I can't be a father when my kids are afraid of me. I can't be a father when I'm just not being the right me. I can't do it anymore. I just, I can't. Later that night, I remember sitting at the computer and 
I was doing research. A bunch of people on your podcast have talked about the center of excellence. I was like, that's the only place that I can think of right now that has any clue about the center service. But thankfully, I sat there for a few hours and they have some little self-help quizzes. So there's, do you have PTSD? You can do a quiz. Are you, do you have anxiety? Do you have depression? Do you have this? Are you, do you have substance abuse issues? And you can do all these quizzes completely anonymous and it gives you a little score. And as I'm doing these quizzes, I'm like, oh shit, maybe I do have PTS. Like maybe you are depressed. Maybe you do have general anxiety. And I was just thinking, okay, what's the next step? Like now, all right, now I've got this. You're telling me there's a good chance that I have this. But how do I get through it? So I called the hotline. And it was after midnight. So I called the hotline and I'm thinking, nobody's going to answer this phone. And if they don't, I don't know where I'm going to go. So sure enough, somebody answers the phone and the guy was, couldn't remember his name, but he was a paramedic in Florida. And now he works for the center of excellence. And we get talking just like you and I are now. And it was so welcoming. And he was like, all right, cool. Let's do this. Let's talk about it. Inpatient. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about like all these different resources. And he's like, so how do you want to pay for this? And I was like, huh, but I don't. And he's like, we don't take your insurance. And I was like, what's the next step? He's like, we can do outpatient that's cheaper. He's like, you still have to pay out of pocket. And he's like, we've got some scholarship funds that we can probably pull from. And I'm going to get some information. He's like, you need to go get some rest. He's like, we'll follow up in the morning. He's like, I'm going to call you sometime tomorrow and we'll go from there. And I was like, oh, cool. So the next day he calls, he's like, we've got this. There's another center that we can try to get you in. You don't have to worry about the insurance, so on and so forth. We're going down that route. And... Now we're starting to fall on deaf ears again. But I'm like, look, man, like I've done four sessions of therapy. I need to get moving. I need to keep going. I want to learn. I want to fix this. I can't be doing this. But I kept falling on. Sorry, we can't help. Sorry, we can't help. Sorry, we can't help. Like, I'm really, I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do. And so I talked to a buddy of mine. He was a cop or is a cop now. And he's, dude, you might have to do this as workman's comp. If you're saying like all these things have happened while you're at work, you might want to look into it. And I was, I don't want to be that guy that's just looking for a payday. I don't want that. I just, he's, their job is to get you help. And I was like, I made a phone call and uh, actually it was a text message. And I had a text message back in five minutes. I had a phone conversation in an hour and I had a meeting set up for the next day. So I ended up going to our health and safety department or division to actually fill out a workman injury packet. And it's like the date of injury. And I'm like, I know December 18th, 2014. And they're like, you have to have at least three for it to fall into a PTSD workman's comp injury. And I'm like, all right, now I got to go sift through all these other calls that I have tucked away and buried for the last 10 years. Now you got to rehash them and talk about them again. But I'm like, look, whatever. I need, to get, I need to get this out. They end up putting me off work for five or six years because there has to be a date of loss. So I'm now the workman's comp, like, kid. Everybody sees that you're on extended sick leave. So everybody's calling you like, what's going on? What's going on? I'm fine. Everything's good. No, I'm safe. Thankfully, my battalion chief at the time was super supportive. The battalion chief that was in charge of health and safety at the time was insanely supportive. He text me every other day to make sure everything was good, make sure I didn't eat. So I go to a regular doctor. She prescribes me sleeping pills and pills for anxiety because with her diagnosis, she's like, I'm saying you have, you have PTSD. At this point, I'm like, when I say sleeping, getting two power naps in the middle of the night and I could probably sleep all day. 
She's like, all right, maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's this. She hands me a bottle of sleeping pills. And this is a little issue with it. She hands me this bottle of sleeping pills and she's only take half of a pill. She's don't take any more than a half a pill and make sure you have 12 to 14 hours to sleep and you don't have anything else to do. And I, as I got in the car leaving, I'm looking at this bottle of pills. There's probably a hundred pills in there. I was like, you just told me that I probably have PTSD and I'm depressed and anxiety. And you give me this bottle of sleeping pills and say, don't take too many. And I just, it baffled me for a while. And thank God I was not in a substance abuse situation. Cause if I was, that would have been tragic. So it goes a couple of days. I'm like, I'm not, not going to take these sleeping pills. I'm not doing it. I'm not taking it. And I guess just from being so anxious of it, I was not sleeping at all. Maybe 15, 20 minutes a night. And so in, in that first couple of shifts that I was off, I was like, all right, I'm taking half a sleeping pill. And it helped me sleep. And I slept from maybe 7.30 one night till like noon the next day. And I felt like absolute shit. So I was like, nope, dumped them all out. I was done with them. I wasn't taking any more sleeping pills. Just completely trashed them. And I've just seen in the EMS world what an injury with prescriptions can do. And I was like, I'm not going to be that story. I also get linked up with a new counselor who does only fire police and military. He's got a pretty extensive career. And same thing, I quickly judge this guy by his cover. He was an older Jewish guy. He actually turned out to be really awesome. Like, he was a counselor that would sit there and cuss with me and everything else. He, was, he knew how to talk to firemen and police and everything else. So I see him for six months, and I'm learning so much more about me. I'm learning about, like, better coping mechanisms. I'm learning, I'm learning just to go read. So at this point, I'm now reading a ton of stuff that's helping me just change all of my mindset on everything. I'm reading leadership books. I'm reading mental health books. I'm reading everything. I can't get enough of them. So now, like all the workman's comp stuff, that's all done and over with. And uh, the chief that was in charge of health and safety reaches out again. And he's like, hey, man, like, how are you doing? What can we do? And I was like, look, I, if you got time, I'd like to sit and talk about this process on how we deal with these kind of things. Now that I'm, Now that I'm on the positive side of it, it's actually a whole lot easier to talk about. Now I realize like there shouldn't have been any stigma behind talking about it. I should have never been scared or worried for covering this up for years. It took me four years from Kenny's accident to me getting a diagnosis and getting true treatment. And the chief an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I said, if I can keep somebody from going down this road or at least supporting them while they are going down this road, it's going to be exponentially better for everybody. And he's, you know what? He's like, I was waiting for you to call me. He's because I think you, you handled it and they're very open about it now. And he's like, what do you think about getting on the peer support team? And I was like, what do we do? He's like, handle like stressful stuff. And you know, when you have the bad calls and the criticism and I was like, I was like, I can tell you my experience with it wasn't that great. And it wasn't because of the people and they didn't do anything, but I feel like there was nothing there for them to do. And he's like, we've got all this new training. We've got these new courses that we're taking. We've got new people running it. He's like, and we're looking at a more proactive aspect. So I'm like, yep, I'm in. And I'm going to take the training. We actually do it through the ICISF and through the IAFF, the IFF peer supporter, and those classes. And they're great. The ICISF teaches theirs more from a, like a layperson-cism model. 
and not so much fire police military, we use it to the fire department's advantage. We tweak our little bits so that it does fit in the fire department. And those of you that have taken the IFF peer supported class, you know that's run strictly for fire uh, fire department personnel. So we take the best of both of those and mash them up together. And our peer support team has designed or coined basically the, the hybrid model. We also teach mental health first aid to all of our new recruits. We're starting to teach it in paramedic research and we're starting to go see seminars and courses and clinics and things like that, where we can get extra training and bring it back to our members. So with that, I get on the team, I'm starting to go call outs. And just by me telling my story, when you hear somebody at the station that's starting to like I, everybody that's listening, that's sat at a firehouse coffee table, you can see that one person that's something's not right. Something's off. Like they're arguing with their spouse and they're having trouble at work and they're just always angry and they're saying they don't sleep and that they're doing this. And I've used that to like, Hey man, Hey, you got a second? Are you okay? Everything good? And, and I had a three strike rule on that, right? So all the fire, police, military people that are listening to this, if anybody ever says, Hey man, are you good? What's the first answer? What's the first answer step? Oh, I'm great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm great. And it's like, no, you're not. How you doing? told you i'm fine and then i give them a second it's no but really how you doing and they they know that they know they can (laughs) it's like that unwritten thing you can see it so when i get the third one and i'm like no really how you doing and they're like man i just got a lot going on i'm like cool i got two ears let's go talk talk have you ever heard of skulls for hope Uh, yes actually yeah it was uh, one podcast yeah so i don't know if you remember that part in his podcast because he uh, he humanizes that question Instead of saying, how are you doing? He'll come to you and say, how's Brad doing? It humanizes the question. It personalizes that question. And it takes the, it, it makes it so specific that you tend to answer it a little more openly. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that we started learning, like, where you can't be too forceful with people, you'll push them away. But the fire department's built on all type A plus personalities, right? And we're all fixers. We all know how to fix all the calls that we go on. That's what we're trained to do. We're trained to go and take charge and control the scene and make everything better. But unfortunately, we don't know how to do that for ourselves. And that's where I really, that's where I really grasped onto it is that, man, if only I had this stuff to talk about and people that I could talk to about it that I trusted and resources that I could read that were vetted and things like that, that it would have saved me years of grief. So by me learning these things on my own and just like chewing through books um that actually my guys on my shift they they laugh with me and they joke about it like what book are you reading this week what book are we they're going to hear about it at the dinner table at the coffee table they're going to hear about the podcast that i listen to the paramedic on my shift he jokes he's i think every time you give advice you say in this one podcast i listen to he's like it's the new this one time at band camp kind of story and uh, i said if it helps if i listen to it and it helps somebody else then it's now, you can pick on me all day long. Pick on me all day long and leave somebody else alone. But if the person that needs to hear it hears it, that's all I need. And so, yeah, that's where I took it. I'm now a team lead for our peer support team. And I coordinate call-outs that happen on our shifts. I coordinate – sometimes it's coordinating off-duty things. Once once we make a, like a touch on something, once we're there and we're involved with it. Now we just keep that continuity. We work with our neighboring departments and things like that. We've been called out out of county to go help 
and I have a reading list that I share with everybody and I have little points on each book on, oh, this was really great for that. This was really great for this. And it's cool because it started like this subculture where everybody's like now passing books around through the fire department. The rookie on my shift for Christmas. I, that's what I gave him for Christmas. I gave him a book. When he finished his rookie book, I gave him another book. And now I'm taking some 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid and building up his resiliency, building up his information cache that he can pull from so that hopefully he doesn't go down the same roads that I went. That's where it's really therapeutic for me because now I'm also reliving those things for me in the sense of I'm giving advice. I got to take my own advice. I can't give advice and not take my own. By helping other people, it's concreting those things in me. And as they come back and they're like, hey, man, like you said this, that, and the other, you showed me this, or you told me to read this book and it was great. It helped me out so much. That's when they can return that it's, it makes me feel good about it. And uh, just being able to have that conversation. And if having that conversation is me sharing my story with them, that, hey, here's where I did things wrong and I don't want to see you do this. Let me help you. And keeping that confidentiality, they end up breaking their own confidentiality because then it's, hey, like I was going through this bad season and all this information and now I'm using it and it's helping me out. And I just had that happen probably a month ago at work. A buddy of mine, he texts me and he said, hey, I'm with you tomorrow. He's not in the right headspace. Something's up. Like he, something's off with him. And he's like, I've been talking to him, but he might talk to you. But if you see him acting a little off, that's what's going on. I'm like, okay. First thing in the morning, I'm at the gym in the station and I'm looking out. And he comes through the door and the bull in a china shop just barges in. And I'm like, hey, man, what's up? And he's like, you got a minute? And I'm like, I got 24 hours, man. What do you want? He's like, no, I'm just not feeling it today. And I'm like, you need to go home? He's like, no, I'm good. And I'm like, well, if you want to close that door and let it rip, tell me what's up. He's like, ah, and just spills his guts about all this stuff. And he's like, I made an appointment with this counselor. And I don't know, I'm kind of worried. And as soon as he made that comment, but I made, it, made an appointment with the counselor. I got up from what I was doing. I walked over and I gave him just this big bro hug. And I'm like, man, I'm so proud of you. And he was like, and he looked at me. And he's like, what? And I was like, that's the hardest part. I was like, you just made a phone call, made an appointment. Like, you're good. Like, you're, you're going to be making so many better decisions. Like, you, you don't even know. I'm so excited for you right now because I know that's how I felt. Like, you have to go in and trust the process. I was like, don't judge the book by the cover because that's what I've done a couple of times. I was like, go in and let them do their thing. And you're going to learn so much about yourself. You're going to feel like a whole new man in no time. And he's really, I'm like, look, man, I'm telling you right now, you call me whenever. If you want me to go with you, I will. If you want me to sit with you, like whatever you need, I want you to go through this journey. Like you have to. I was like, comes from line of firefighters and his family also. And he's a damn good fireman. He's a good driver. And like everything about him, he's so awesome. I'm like, dude, you're going to be so much better with everything when you go through this. And he, the day he went to his appointment, he calls me. He's like, he's like, man, I'm going in. I'm nervous. And I'm like, dude, don't be nervous. The water's fine. Come on in. And he called me like two hours later. And he was like, dude, I'm hooked. He's on the peer support team. I want this. I want to tell my story. I want to help people. He's because... I felt like I was so covered up, like I was hiding from something that I didn't need to hide from. He's like, now that somebody's like listening to me and all this. So that's where I've really taken my journey is that we had this antiquated SISM model and we just weren't using it to its full capacity. We were using it a reactive tool instead of a proactive tool. And we start talking ideas and we spit all these ideas with all of the peer support members. And we've actually brought in health and safety. 
So we are turning into fitness and sleep and mental health and mental well-being and stress for And we put all these things together and we use them synergistically. Like they all mesh together and that's where we're really taking it. And one of your other guests, I went through his 62 Romeo program and I praise it. I'm telling everybody about it. We do everything poorly in the fire service about sleep hygiene, running calls, just burning our candle at both ends. We're like, that's, that's one of the reasons we're all getting cancer too early. That's one of the reasons we're having a lot of mental health issues. Once we get our sleep under control, we're going to be moving forward light years. And so once you see how all of these things are tied together in this giant web, we're going to make the fire service that much better. We're going to get every ounce of progress that we can put into it. We're going to get it all out. It's going to be so much better. And uh, so just listening to different podcasts, I've heard this one and then I'm like, oh, I really like how that was. And just like now pulling it all, if we can have as many resources available to us for all these things, we can keep people from going down the ugly road that's there that we've been doing for generations in the fire service. But now since it's more the buzzword, like now's the time to really capitalize on all that and spread that word. So I'm a, I want to back up a little bit and talk sure. about a couple of things you spoke about, the things you've done since being in, in therapy, basically. And you talked about that you're providing mental health first aid to the recruits, correct? Correct. What does that look like when you present to them? So really, it's it's a, a course that was developed that does exactly that. You can see, you can use characteristics of people in the green zone, the red zone, the orange zone, things like that. So when you see people getting closer to crisis mode of that person that's not sleeping, that's binge eating or not eating at all or drinking or using really negative coping mechanisms, you, we can start to see that and then bring it back into the resiliency of just being aware. So it, we teach them, okay, the green zone is you and I having a good conversation today. And you seem pleasant, you seem happy, you seem like things are going well, like you're the green zone. And I don't want to say I'm not worried about you, but it's not a, a, a dramatic priority. And then as you see people, wow, I see Brad showing up to work late. He's never done that before. I see him staying up all hours of the night. That's usually not like him. He used to work out all the time. And now he's not doing that. He's been on a really strict diet. Now he's eating like crap all the time. Like when we start to see these characteristics that people are changing from their normal, that's time for us to step in and almost do that. That buddy, every firefighter says it to every other firefighter. Hey man, call me if you need anything. This is our time to reverse that and say, Hey, I've noticed this about you and I'm really concerned. And that's what we do with the mental health first aid. And not being clinicians, we can't really step in and say, hey, I think you're depressed. I think you're this. All I can do is step in and say, hey, man, I'm concerned about you. Like, I'm seeing these things and that's not like you. Like, I'm concerned that these might be deeper issues. And I'd like to see if maybe we can talk about some resources to help you do that. Sometimes, most of the time, what I've found personally is that those people just need a cathartic release. They just need somebody to vent to. Like, all this stuff is going wrong, and I just need you to hear it, and this is why it pisses me off. And I take a line out of Colin Powell's book, and one of his points of success is get mad and get over it. Sometimes that's all we need to do. We just need to vent and be angry and be heard, and then at the end of it, you feel so much better. So it could be that bad call. I could come home from Kenny's call and be like, it's just, it sucks that it's the two weeks before Christmas. It's this, it's that. And yada, and we did everything we could, and it still didn't happen. And yada, and I, 
just go on and on and then have your accountability partner say, you're right, man, that sucks. And sometimes that's all you need to hear is that what you're feeling is valid. And that's what we really push with that mental health first aid. It gets to the point that, hey, man, this is above my pay grade. I'm not a clinician. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. I can't help you anymore, but I can help you find resources. That's what we really push home. The other thing we talked about, and I don't think you've mentioned it yet, is the app that the uh, your department purchased. <laughs> yeah, actually, we just launched that in December. So it's a Cortico. Cortico is the app from Lexapro. And what we have is, before, all of our resources for peer support were on the Google Drive, right? The only way to get to it is through somebody with peer support. And that was working, but it wasn't as out in front. So with the app, we actually have, it's completely anonymous. It's a single login and password. It's available to all of our members, all of their family, retirees and new family, as well as the volunteers within the county and all of their families. And you go in and you have right up front is a get help now. So if you are in crisis and you need help immediately, it sends you to a hotline that links you to help immediately. There's so many resiliency portions in, inside the app. There's things to help with sleep, like sleep sounds ways to get good sleep hygiene, like what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. It has all the team members on peer support, all their contact information. It might be news to some people, but I'm not everybody's best friend. So if they go on there and they don't want to choose me, but they want to choose you, they have that ability. So there's that. And the best part is it's completely anonymous. And in the first 15 days that we launched, we had 300 downloads. It, it does track the uses or the other way we call it is like touches. So if you go into a certain part of the app, it'll track that somebody is there, but it doesn't track who it is at all. And looking forward to seeing the numbers as time goes by, but it's another thing that we put out there. And I know for me, listening to the podcast was my anonymous way of getting some sort of talk therapy just by listening to other people. It's still talk therapy, but like I can listen to it on my own time in my car my truck like i have an hour ride to work to and from work so i have plenty of time to sit and listen to the podcast and nobody has to know nobody knows what i'm listening to at that time so the anonymity is huge and if you have the ability to look through this app anonymously like i did through the center of excellence website that night if you have that ability it takes that that fear factor out of it like now you can do it without people knowing. We're really hoping that the numbers are climbing and that report should be out soon for uh, for the Jan the month of January. So Awesome. When you get the numbers, I'd like to hear what you guys find and Absolutely. and just uh, how where you go with it from here because it sounds it is just for your department, correct? So, yes, the app that we have is just for our department, but there's major departments across the country that are using it. Okay. Uh, yeah, big departments. I don't want to I don't remember exactly what they were. I want to say a couple in Texas, a couple in California, like big major departments that are using it. And I think there's even smaller departments, police departments and things like that. It's not designed specifically for our department, but it's a it's like a canned app that can be titrated to your department. Understood. So. OK, cool. All right. We're coming to that part of the show where we're going to talk about the final two questions. Sure. And, we're going to go with an everyday carry first. And I, a couple of times on this show, I've gone more in a couple, almost every time on these episodes, I've gone into why I call it an everyday carry. So what is something you 
can't leave home without that you feel naked i gotta steal a line from a couple of the other guests that you've had i have my daughter's footprints tattooed on the inside of my arms and that way they're always under my wing even though some days i want to strangle them you know how kids are but if it wasn't for that night where they were brutally honest with me i don't know where my path would have taken because they helped push me to where i am there they will always be there what this is funny because it, tattoos are coming quickly becoming one of the favorite answers, and it's obvious. And you can't leave without it. You can't leave your house without your tattoos on. I almost feel like I need to just say, "All right, tell me your favorite tattoo, and then tell me your favorite your everyday carry." <laughs> so I might have to change yeah. this question up a little bit, sure. and because we, I think any of us in well, not I would, I don't know what the numbers would be, but you know that the book tattoo and tattoos and trauma obviously explain why we do it, why we get these tattoos. And anyone that's been through something in their life probably has something to show for it on their skin. Yeah. Right, so you gave me a list of books. Now I'm going to limit you. And I know that's going to hem you up a little bit, but I don't care. It's my show. That's right. I'm going to limit you to one book that you're okay. going to suggest to the audience. And then if it's a book that's already been suggested, I'm going to pick one and ask you to describe it for me. Perfect. I don't think this one's been picked on your list. Ego is the enemy. Okay. No, it hasn't. Go for it. So I liked it because it's it's multifaceted and being helpful. I liked just being in the fire department with a bunch of people, being in type A personality environment, and really going through the, the, the PTS side of life. I really had to put my ego on a shelf. I had to stop. I had to realize that I didn't have all the answers, that I didn't know what to do, that I really had to put that aside and then dive into listening to other people. I think for a leadership book, it's great. I think as a self-help book, it's great. And yeah, that would be one of my top five. But obviously today it's only my, it's my top one. But I had two in mind when I looked at your list that jumped out at me. Okay. And the mission, the men and me. Oh, another great one. And that's uh, by, what's his name? Pete Blaber? Blaber? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, I'd have to look that up. No, I have the listener in front of me, and it's spelled okay. B-L-A-B-E-R. So I'm not sure I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but tell me about that. The mission of men and me is, uh, I guess, like the old adage, horse gun soldier. If, you know, as a company officer, the chief has set forth her expectations, and it's not about what I want. It's about what she wants, or whoever your fire chief is or police chief. They've set the mission. If we all work towards the mission, then it's all a team effort and we move forward. Um, the men or the women, men and women, as a company officer, I have to take care of them. I'm not driving the fire engine. I'm not pulling the hand line. I'm not in the back of the medic unit. They have their jobs and their responsibilities. My job is to make sure they have everything they need to do their jobs, whether that's training, tools, equipment, time off, you name it. I have to take care of them first and then me. So... Unfortunately, in the peer support world, we like to revert back to those that have flown and they talk about the oxygen mask. They always say, put your mask on before you help anybody else. So unfortunately, the mission that many me goes again. It's a little counterintuitive in that aspect. But when you see the mission and you see the men and the women working, then there's less that you really have to take care of. And if you take care of if you take care of the men and the women, they will take care of you. I could probably write a book of little one-liners and how it pertains to the peer support world. And one of my favorites is from Teddy Roosevelt. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So if you take care of your people, will take care of you. And um, so that's why the mission men and me works. If you take care of them, they will take care of the mission. They will take care of you and everything's synergistic. 
All right. The next one that jumped out at me was no time for spectators. <sighs> Again, that's another one of just, I think it preaches to all those go-getters in the fire department that wars don't wait for us to be ready. We have to train. We have to practice. We have to be ready because the fires don't wait for that. The bad calls don't wait for that. So it's very much about being forward in, in what you're doing. And I like to say that really separates the ones from who who's here to be a firefighter and who's here for the free t-shirts. Who wants the free t-shirts and the half off at Chick-fil-A? We don't have time for them. We have to be, we have to be proactive all the time so that we can be the best people for the job when the time comes. Perfect. I love it. Those are, I'm going to link to all those in the show notes when the show comes out. I'm looking at a few weeks from now, dropping this show. So I've got my 50th show planned for next week. So I've got something coming up. I'm actually going to sit down and record it right after we get finished talking. And then a couple of weeks after that will be your show coming out. Very cool. I appreciate your time. It was, it's been nah. a great conversation and thanks for reaching out to me and thanks for jumping on board with what I'm trying to do here. Yeah, well, I'm glad I could be part of it. I appreciate you having me on. And I just like seeing all this stuff coming out of the shadows and being more proactive. So I'm glad I could help. Look, keep in touch, man. Tell me, let me know how the app does. Let me know how things are going. And you know, you're right up the road, basically. And I've got another guy, Kevin, is out there that I recorded early on in the podcast. And he's okay. on the Eastern Shore as well. So maybe we'll have a little little Eastern Shore reunion out that way sometime. And we can just get together and talk. So... Sounds good, man. All right. I appreciate right. you. Go enjoy the rest of your, what is it, Monday? I don't, I've lost track of days again. <laughs> so go enjoy the rest of your day. It's beautiful outside, and we'll talk to you later, sir. All right. We'll talk to you. All right, man. Take care. Yep. We are out. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.